Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 112 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This time around, we sit down for an awesome chat with Tori Pratt of Pratt Standard Cocktail Company to discuss her journey through the world of grenadines, tonic syrups, and so much more. Now, it's not a coincidence that we're talking with Tori. It's actually more like a celebration. As of the airing of this episode, you can head over to modernbarcart.com and purchase four flavors of Pratt Standard cocktail syrups, including... The thing that started it all, their legendary tonic syrup, their complex and tangy grenadine, their ever-popular ginger syrup, and their cola syrup, all made using traditional ingredients and flavor profiles. Through September 30th, 2019, if you enter the coupon code TORY, that's T-O-R-Y, at checkout, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. And remember... As always, if your order exceeds 40 bucks, we ship full free anywhere in the continental U.S. That coupon code is exclusive to podcast listeners, so you know we really love you. And you know what? Let's keep that love train rolling and give you the chance right now to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Tequila Sunrise, another cocktail that arose during the cocktail dark ages of the 1970s. Of course, even in recipes like this one that are designed to please the eye perhaps more than the palate, there's always a seed of genius behind the formulation, something timeless that keeps us coming back. To make a tequila sunrise, you'll need two ounces of Blanco tequila. If you're in a pinch, you can also use a reposado, two ounces of orange juice, and one ounce of grenadine. We, of course, always use Pratt Standard grenadine. Traditionally, you would build this drink in a rocks glass over a large rock, adding first the tequila, then the orange juice, and finally the grenadine, which is going to sink to the bottom because it's the heaviest. The effect is an orange-red gradient that looks like a beautiful sunrise, and you're going to garnish this cocktail traditionally with a nice big orange wheel right on the side of the glass. Now, if you're looking to turn this into a longer drink, just double that orange juice and stick it in a larger Collins glass. And finally, if you're willing to eschew the pretty colors for a more balanced drink, just shake it quickly over a couple of large rocks before you strain. It still comes out a lovely color and it tastes at least 10 times better. So now that you've got a use case for your first bottle of Pratt Standard Grenadine, which we taste on the air during this episode, let's get back to our interview with Tori. Some of the things that she and I discuss include how a childhood spent in and around the catering industry gave Tori the inspiration to start her own company and taught her to approach cocktails from a culinary perspective. What it means to get back to the true roots of a traditional cocktail ingredient and why it sometimes takes 47 test batches until you're happy with the end result. The intricacies of sourcing ingredients like exotic cola nuts and Turkish pomegranates. How Tori built her business from a kitchen concept to a brand being sold in 14 states and partnering with Whole Foods. 
You may not have heard of them. They're kind of small. Strategies for rebranding a line of existing products, equipment you need and mistakes to avoid when making syrups in your own home kitchen, and much, much more. It's always great to sit down with somebody who understands the ins and outs of the mixer's world. It's a strange world, and Tori and I have been operating within it for long enough to have a few good laughs and share our findings with you all. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to present this sweet, tangy conversation with Tori Pratt of Pratt Standard Cocktail Company. Tori, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little about you and how you got to be a cocktail entrepreneur? Sure. So I'm Tori Pratt. I started Pratt Standard Cocktail Company about four and a half years ago, although it was under a different name then. And I started it because I love cocktails. <laughs> and I actually was in a totally different profession. I was doing international development work, but I didn't really feel connected to the product of what I was doing. And so my release was cooking. Um, I grew up around the food industry. I always loved food and beverage uh, from the beginning. And my mom was a caterer, so I ate like amazing food growing up. And then I went to college and I actually lost the freshman 15 instead of gaining it because I wasn't <laughs> eating her like her amazing food anymore. I used to go to the cafeteria and ask the lunch ladies to give me eggs and take them back to the dorm to cook them myself because it was so gross. But anyways, cooking has been a pastime of mine. And one of the things I came up with was a tonic syrup because um, I had tried a gin and tonic with a local gin and I just couldn't taste the gin anymore once I put the tonic on top of it. And so I said to myself, there has to be a way this was done before like high fructose corn syrup and everything else. And so I came up with our tonic syrup recipe, 47 different recipe iterations, which was a little crazy, but then we launched it in November of 2014, and honestly, I didn't expect it to go anywhere. Um, I didn't expect this business to grow the way that it has, um, or for it to be my full-time gig at any point, <laughs> but it is. And now we have five different syrups, and we're sold in 14 states and on Amazon Prime, which is craziness. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. That's a, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean... It's kind of weird um, to think of that because if I had told myself five years ago this is what I would be doing, I'm sure you feel that way too. <laughs> it's a little crazy, but I'm pretty sure my, the old version of myself would have laughed at me. But Yeah, that's so cool growing up with a, a mom who's a caterer, especially because yeah. I think both of us manufacturing facilities where we interact with a lot of caterers. Definitely. Which yeah. is an interesting thing. Like I'll just be like manufacturing and somebody will come over with like a plate of stuff and just like plop totally. it down next to me. I'm like, totally. what? <laughs> I know. Where did this materialize from? And that happened all the time at home. Like my, but the thing is in Pennsylvania where I'm from, you can actually operate out of your home instead of a commercial facility. Right. So we have like a commercial kitchen, but in our home, uh, which is a little crazy, but awesome. Yeah. We have this amazing like uh, circular kitchen an island that serves as like a dinner table and then also like prep space but I would grow up and my mom would just like she'd be making stuff all the time she and my dad ended up starting a smoked seafood business together um, when I was little so uh, there was one time in college where I went to uh, to UPS to ship package and the guy looked at the package and he was like you know three-way taping 
why do you know three-way taping? And I was like, well, uh, I guess I taped a lot of boxes for my parents at the age of like 10. <laughs> yeah. And so, it's imp- it's still important, right? It's still uh, really important. Like yeah. the random skills that you learn and you're like, oh, wait, actually, that's really important. <laughs> little side note. This is this is like a little uh, therapy session for people who ship things in <laughs> chip glass and liquid through oh God, UPS. Yeah. <laughs> I was at the UPS place dropping off some e-commerce orders and uh, the guy saw that I'd put like a fragile do not stack sticker on on a big box. He goes, you know, that doesn't matter, right? Oh. And I'm like, you know what? I've seen how your guys treat the stuff. Literally like, play football with it. Exactly. So like even <laughs> if everything is automated between you and the delivery guy, I still want the delivery guy to exactly. see it. Exactly. So no, uh, I totally understand. We had a custom box made for our syrups for shipping six at a time, and it survives an eight-foot drop test three times. Um, and so that means you can drop it from the height of eight feet three times in a row. I'm sorry if this is boring to most people, but I super geek out about this kind of stuff. Yet, once every like 10 shipments, somebody breaks a box. And so that means they threw it eight feet at least three times right <laughs> it's it blows my it really blows my mind yeah. when i when i hear like what especially which packages because i pack them within an inch of their life i'm yeah. like you get a box and you get a box <laughs> uh anyway so let's get back yeah, to sorry. uh end therapy session so <laughs> Catering background growing up, mm-hmm. and so obviously you're interested in flavor. Your Absolutely. first spark of an idea was this gin and tonic situation where you thought, and this was probably this was at least for us, I imagine, pretty early on in the what you'd want to call maybe the cocktail renaissance. And so an idea is sparked. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about your? I guess, interest in cocktails and where that might have come from before before and after that fateful gin and tonic experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always loved beverages, but from the perspective of food. So I always think of beverages as something that should have a food lens applied to it. And oftentimes cocktails don't really have that. And so when I started like toying around with cocktails, which was definitely in college, I was that weird person who was like making martinis at the age of like 18. Mm -hmm. And people were like, what is wrong with you? Um, But I've always really liked like strong flavors um, and punchy flavors. And I always felt that there's just so much versatility in cocktails that doesn't exist in a lot of other beverages. So you can really express like a full spectrum of flavor in a cocktail in a way that you don't get from wine. Like the difference between two wines, even if they're like crazy opposite ends of the spectrum is not nearly as different as usually two cocktails are from each other. So I think my interest in cocktails started probably in college. um, And I just wanted to apply cooking methodologies and like flavor theory to cocktails. And it was the most, uh, I guess it was the easiest platform to do it on in the beverage world with booze in it, of course. Yeah, I like that point about versatility and kind of the strength or like you said, the punchiness of a flavor because I think of it in the same way. When I think of like a wine or even to a certain extent, some barrel-aged spirits mm-hmm. like like brandies and bourbons mm-hmm. and sometimes I think of those as like a narrative story, like the way Mm -hmm. that the way the grapes were treated on the vine, the way they were processed and then the way they were aged. 
and then the climate and the terroir. I mean, totally. that's a that's a narrative story. But but when I think of a uh, a cocktail, I think of it more as like a poem or a performance piece. Mm. And there's just a different type of energy that goes into that. Totally. And I think it totally is more punchy because it is necessarily more of a short form of art. It was yes. created right there in the moment on the spot for you. And so there's like, there is, I think the word, like the word that you use punchiness is really like a good word to describe that because it, it shows the the force and almost the spontaneity as opposed to the carefully laid out narrative of a single stream spirit or a single stream like ferment. Absolutely. And it is, you know, cocktails are definitely less expressive of terroir than they are of, you know, distiller technique and then all the other ingredients that are going into it. Mm -hmm. If you're making a cocktail, usually it's, you know, at least half mixer, um, unless it's, you know, a super boozy one. Um, And so that means that, like, it's going to have a lot of flavor from the other ingredients. Um, So it is definitely punchy. One of the other things I like about it is that cocktails are... you can tailor them to people's taste in a way that you can't, you know, wine or beer. Oftentimes people, if they don't like beer, they're probably not going to find a single beer that they will like. Maybe there's one or two um, styles that really fit what they like. But when it comes to a cocktail, because you can express so many different flavors, um, it's actually not that hard to find something that somebody will like. Yeah, I think at least. No, I agree. And it, like the, really the only thing you can say in the wine world is like a sommelier, right? Yeah. That's the job of the sommelier. But exactly. in the cocktail world, pretty much anybody who knows about cocktails in general can mm-hmm. step into that role and tailor something to somebody with, with a base level of knowledge as opposed to a knowledge of vintages mm-hmm. and, you know, that all that that sort of stuff. So how did how did that fascination lead you to create the product line that we see today because sure. we, we started with the tonic syrup and you said something mm-hmm. crazy like 37 or seven, 47, 47 recipe iterations <laughs> which is I'm I can I can sympathize but yeah. that's, that's still more than I think I've ever done but what what did the like the the creation of the brand and the line of syrups look like so it was basically an extension of my personal philosophy on food and beverage, which is just that um, if you'd make something the way it was originally made, usually it ends up better. <laughs> um, you know, food and other things like that get bastardized over time, especially when you're adding in, you know, strange flavor components and preservatives and things like that. So um, I'm an experimenter and a perfectionist at heart, which is why, you know, 47 different recipe iterations. So when I started this business, I actually thought I was just going to create a line of six or seven different tonic syrups, all different flavors. And I started selling the tonic. And within a month or two, I had about 15 customers who asked me for a grenadine. Uh, And I said, okay, um, let me figure out how grenadine was originally made and make this properly. And I'll admit, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about it when I started. And so I looked into the history and I do what I do best, which is, you know, experimenting and then also looking deeply into the history of a thing and then trying to come up with a version that represents that flavor the best. And so then the grenadine was born, made from pomegranate juice, uh, the way it was supposed to be made, but we don't just use pomegranate juice. 
We also use orange blossom water, which is a critical ingredient in grenadine. And then we also wanted to really respect the pomegranate. And we actually use two different types of pomegranate juice in it because different pomegranates have different flavor profiles to them. So pomegranates from California are really juicy and big and sweet, but not terribly complex. Then there's Turkish pomegranate juice, which is super complex, very tart, kind of brown and weird, but really delicious. Mm -hmm. So we mix the two. So we get the full spectrum of pomegranate flavor. And that kind of attention to flavor detail is something that I wanted to apply across all of our products. Mm -hmm. Um, So then after that, we released the cola, which is based on the original cola recipe, Um, which took a lot of research. And of course, we can't use cocaine, but uh, we make it as authentic as possible. And then after that, we did the ginger and the rich simple syrup. And our ginger is definitely our most popular syrup. Um, It's made from just whole ginger that we peel and juice ourselves. So super, super gingery. We put a full pound of ginger in every single bottle. So you can see like a theme throughout all of this, which is just that we really care about quality and making everything the way it was originally made. We don't skimp in the way that a lot of companies do um, in order to make money. So there are lots of things that like, we didn't make money on our ginger for the first six months. Because I was, I was going to say, like, I just did the math was, in my head. What is it? What is ginger? Like you can yeah. like 30 pounds, like what I would buy is like 30 pounds. And right. even then it's like five bucks a pound. Yeah. So if you're putting um, a pound in every bottle, that's $5 of input just, right there. And not to mention that you're peeling the outside first and you're juicing it. So you're not yeah. even getting the, like you'll end up having to use two to three pounds of ginger in order to, yeah. So, um, we figured out how to make it work, but at the end of the day, I really care much more about I think quality and authenticity are going to be the things that make this business work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't want to compromise on it and those values. So it means that if we lose money on a product until we figure out a way to process it properly so that we can save money, fine, let's do that. But I wanted a real ginger beer base, like one that actually tasted like ginger and wasn't loaded with sugar. So that's what happened. Yeah, for sure. Now let's Let's talk real quick about some of these this sourcing that you do because that mm-hmm. that obviously has to require a lot of work, especially at it first, to, until you get a pipeline going and a relationship totally. with your uh, your suppliers. And this might be a little bit foreign to some of our listeners who are sitting here listening to this and be like, all right, let's get to the syrups. Let's get to the syrups. <laughs> but I think so, that, that a lot of the value is in overcoming some of those initial hurdles, especially when you're doing what you're doing, which is trying to create authentic, kind of like historically relevant recipes. So I'm interested in the cola and the, the especially the Turkish pomegranates. Um, yes. How do you, how do you get these? So um, it's kind of difficult because <laughs> a lot of it just takes, you know, some serious Google research and then you buy a lot um, and then you taste all of it and you just see what works best. So for the, for the Turkish, for the pomegranate juices, we buy juice. We don't juice it ourselves okay. because it would be nearly impossible to juice it ourselves. The other thing is there would be no consistency from batch to batch. Um, and we need consistency, especially acidity wise. So we found a supplier a long time ago uh, for our Turkish pomegranate juice, and we bought a pallet of it once we decided on it. And we ran out of grenadine at one point, and we went to the you know pallet storage facility, and we only had like a couple bottles left of the pallet. And so um, 
you know, they just said, my guy said, okay, well, we need to order more pomegranate juice. Went back to the company. They went out of business and hadn't told us. So I was like, oh, shoot, what are we supposed to do now? And so I had, I like called like six export companies from Turkey. And I was like, who, who exports pomegranate juice? Like, I need this. I also tried to contact the old company to figure out where were they getting their juice from so that I could like figure it out. They just went radio silent. So Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff is like absolutely crazy. But I think you have to do a lot of research to make sure that not only is it a good source, but it's a reliable source um, because otherwise your customers could be out of, you know, something for a while, which I'm sure you've probably run into before. Sure. Yeah. There's the great lavender shortage of 2018. There was the great bitter orange peel shortage of 2017. There was, yeah, exactly. There was a time I remember when like lemons a couple of years ago got super, super expensive. Yeah. And And limes. Yeah. yeah. The cartels, something to do with like Mexican cartels. Yeah. And like there were, and there was also like blight in Florida. And so like the domestic source was really, really bad. And I was like, whoever thought that the problems I would be solving in my job are like, where to get some lemons. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> wow. So what about the cola? Is that made with actual cola nut? Yes. So it's made from actual cola nut, which is a nut from a tree. It's actually technically a seed, so it doesn't cause issues with nut allergies or anything like that. Um, and it's one of the uh, original sources of caffeine. Um, so it was originally used uh for like it's very rare and so it was given as gifts in africa um in different places uh because they were just so rare and obviously caffeine has an amazing effect that is used the world over um and so uh we use cola nut and then we also use a bunch of other of the original ingredients one of the most interesting ingredients that goes into cola a real cola that most people don't know about is ginger it has a lot of ginger in it. So we actually take some of the fresh pressed juice that we make from our ginger and we put it into our cola because um, originally cola was supposed to help settle the stomach and it was served, um, it was sold actually at uh, pharmacies across the US. So some people over a certain age might remember actually going to a pharmacy and having a prescription or asking for cola syrup to help settle the stomach. And most of that settling the stomach comes from the ginger in it, not from the cola nut. Sure, sure. Yeah. Wow, that's... uh it's just so fascinating to hear the story about how all of that developed. So, so how about we just crack open the grenadine here, take a little taste of this as sort of like a representative of the line here. Um, and then we can talk about some of the other decisions that you made in the, in the process of developing these. Sounds great. Hmm. Yeah. So it this smells is- really, uh, like earthy. Yes. So that's the Turkish pomegranate right there. So that's why, and you look at the color and it's like definitely grenadine, but it's got some cloudiness to it. It's even got a little bit of browner color to it, um, which is because of the Turkish pomegranate, um, which adds a ton to flavor. And you can even smell some of the tannin um, too that you'll end up tasting in the palate. hundred percent. It reminds me of chinar, like just Mm -hmm. on the nose. It's really complex. And then one of the other things you get when you taste it, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. There's sweetness, there's tartness, there's 
Definitely pomegranate. Like the pomegranate comes through. Yep. You and get that like jawbone response. Mm-hmm. Totally. A little bit of tartness from the real pomegranate. And then there's at the end, the nice orange blossom water for like the floral value. Yeah, totally. And that's something that you have to have like a real careful mm-hmm. hand on because you put too much in there that can like oh, completely totally. ruin it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember actually when we were first starting, I had to toy around with the different levels of um, of orange blossom water. And I overdid it once and I was like, oh my God, this is medicinal. <laughs> yeah. It's strange too, because it's like, technically it's just a, like a hydrosol or like a distilled, mm-hmm. like not a alcohol distilled, but like a vapor water distilled thing. Right. And so you wouldn't think that it would be as potent as it is just it's being so a distilled potent. water, but it's like, whoa. It's so potent. Um, for our listeners, you can go out and buy actual like off the shelf rose water or orange blossom water. Usually you're going to go to a Middle Eastern market for these mm-hmm. types of, of products and, and you can start playing around with them. Orjat in the tiki tradition is one of the big kind of syrup players in that space. Mm-hmm. Obviously a, a traditional grenadine as well. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, you'll, as soon as you, if you, if you do decide to pick one up, just be real careful with yes. it because it can your how if you spill it your house is going to smell like it for days and maybe that's a good thing maybe it's not totally. I don't know. It does smell really nice. It, it does. just can be a bit much. Um, definitely, if you do buy some, make sure to make a Ramos gin fizz. Your arms will hurt, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I find that it does do well in creamier and sweeter and dessertier things. Absolutely. Because isn't baklava orange water as well? It's rose, I rose. think. Um, I think. I can't remember. But a lot of Middle Eastern desserts have it in it. A lot of Indian desserts also have uh, both rose water or orange blossom water in it. And often those are like the like the cheese slash cottage cheese based Indian desserts that have those in them. Exactly. Tends to go well with like cardamom and things like that. Right. And I think the rose water in the baklava is to pair with the pistachio. That makes sense. Right. So we're going to have all of these beautiful true syrups minus the rich simple right now. Um, but we're going to have the grenadine, we're going to have the ginger, we're going to have the cola, and we're going to have the tonic syrup all available for our listeners to purchase over at modernbarcart.com. And uh, we're going to have next to all of those product listings, we're going to have a nice flavor profile. We're going to have all the specs for these products, and we're going to have some recipe recommendations as well. So head on over to modernbarcart.com. If this podcast is live, if you're listening to it, then the products are up there ready to purchase. Um, and we're even going to have a little feature video at some point in the next week showing Tori actually teaching us how to make a tequila sunrise using the, uh, the grandine here. Perfect. So last thing I wanted to talk about really, um, is the process of transitioning from true syrups to Pratt standard cocktail company Mm -hmm. and, I sympathize because obviously I've rebranded from just a bitters company in our embitterment bitters to modern bar cart, different, mm-hmm. kind of a different look and feel. I, I want to um, learn more about what kind of prompted you to, to make the rebrand sure. and, and A, how it's going and, and, and B, like how the products kind of work into that. Absolutely. So 
Um, we were originally True Tonics Co. And then we turned into True Syrups and Garnishes because we weren't just doing tonic anymore. Like mm-hmm. I thought we were just going to do tonic. And then I said, okay, well, we're just going to be a syrup company. And now I realized that, you know, we're not just a syrup company. We do a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, we just sell syrups for now. But um, what we're really doing is providing, you know, cocktail uh, services and advice. Um, we do a lot of cocktail classes, um, and we really wanted to a name that really fit that better. So, as true syrups and garnishes, it also felt like a really. I'm, I mean, to be honest, it's just a bland name. It it means authenticity. It means something true, but it wasn't something that I could really build a brand around. Not in the same way that I could build it around my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is I got into this because of my family anyways. And so, you know, because I had that quality standard growing up, we, I actually was sitting down with my sister, who's our designer, and she did all of our labels and everything. And she, we, we you know, bounced around probably 100 names. And at the end of the day, we just, we picked Pratt because it made sense. It said everything that we needed to say. And then we also tested it with a bunch of people and a bunch of people said that even not knowing that my name was Pratt, uh, that they felt Pratt standard um, kind of conveyed exactly what we wanted it to convey. Um, Because we're also expanding more nationally this year, I wanted a name that would be more distinctive um, than just True. There are a lot of companies out there named True. There are very few named Pratt. And it's kind of abstract, right? And cocktails are the opposite of abstract. They're yeah. very concrete. They're they're tied to the person who makes them. Absolutely. And there is something about, you know, the the comfort of having a cocktail from a person that you know that is part of what we're selling. So it's a really important thing to bring for us to bring in that character and personality to the brand as opposed to just being, you know, true and authentic. You know, that's great. But it's like having your own personal bartender. Yeah, exactly. Were there any uh, standout, like really bad names that oh, came God. out? Well, there were. There was one that uh, was really divisive. So my sister and I really loved it, and um, my husband hated it. It was Tatler, which is like a it's a, a a British like newspaper or something like that. That's the only like name that that actually already still exists out there, but it was a weird word. And so we thought, okay, well maybe this would be good. And it's kind of related to telling stories around like beverages and stuff like that, but we didn't feel connected enough to it. So in thinking back on it, like I would use Tatler for maybe like a, like a side brand if we were to do like some weird one-off syrups or something like that. But I don't, yeah. I don't think we'd do that if you were to do like an earl gray syrup and maybe like a mm-hmm. uh like a pim syrup yeah or something like that totally that would work there you go yeah all right next. actually yeah next, it's actually really funny because we are toying around with some seasonal syrups right now uh because we're working with whole foods on their their bar program for a couple of new places which is really exciting um and one of the uh, one of the syrups is actually an earl gray vanilla syrup we did a taste test with a bunch of friends last night and everybody loved the earl gray vanilla so we may be selling an earl gray vanilla <laughs> we'll that's see. exciting yeah it is exciting. exciting uh anything you want to share with our listeners before we jump into the uh, uh, lightning round um no i mean 
I don't think I have anything in particular. Like, check out our website, follow us on social. Um, we're not like super on top of it, but we try. <laughs> yeah. We're in the kitchen most of the time making the stuff. Exactly. People. Exactly. If you wonder where we are <laughs> That's in a where commercial we're. kitchen <laughs> or in a car making deliveries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So, favorite cocktail of all time. And if you don't have one, it's okay. I have one. Yeah, okay. Cool. It's really easy for me. That's a daiquiri. All right. What's your daiquiri spec? So, I like one and a half of white rum. It can be a like lightly aged white rum, um, and then half of our rich simple syrup, or one of just a regular simple syrup, and um, one of lime. So equal parts lime to a simple, um, and then uh, one and a half rum. And I can just down those like nobody's business. Yeah. It's my favorite cocktail. It's- the OG. I know. And I love all variations on it. And if anybody out there has not had, you've probably had, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably had a real one. Uh, but for anybody who hasn't had a real daiquiri, it's not supposed to be like frozen or like overly sweet. It's a shaken cocktail, strained, and it's just beautifully it's so simple. It's just so simple and beautiful. You taste the rum, you taste the lime, you taste the sweet. There is nothing fussy about it. Now, this might be a little bit meta since we're talking about cocktail ingredients. Mm-hmm. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually thought about this one beforehand because I was like, how do I want to portray myself? And I, I think I'm going to say that I'm not a cocktail ingredient. I am the recipe. Um because I am an incredibly detail-oriented and sometimes really anal person. And I feel like a, um, a recipe really reflects that a lot better than any specific ingredient. <laughs> Especially when you have to do 47 iterations. Exactly. Well, for my personal needs, I needed to do 47. I'm sure it was probably good after 20, but... <laughs> but I just, I, I think about when I do iterations like that, like I've got the spreadsheet and I've got the totally. inputs and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, like I I have like a special way of tracking exactly what I'm tweaking between Absolutely. 2A and 2B. Eric, you're my kind of person. Well, that's <laughs> what, I think that's why we're both still alive after yeah. like four or five years of doing this. I, I think so too. <laughs> um, it, it definitely takes a lot. So that's, I like that because re- recipes are something I've been getting more into. There's this, I just came across a podcast. It's only got like six episodes. It's mm-hmm. it's um, some artist guy who reads food recipes. Hmm. Like he'll pick very like well-written food recipes that like are really artfully written. Mm. And at first I was like, ah, this is just some stupid performance piece. I can't believe I downloaded this. <laughs> but I wasn't in the position to turn it off because mm. I was like driving and there's a lot of traffic. And then by the time I got five minutes into it, I was like, it's actually fascinating to listen to somebody actually read huh. a recipe because there actually is an art to it. Huh. So That's um, something I never would have thought. And I can imagine like reading... Like a Julia Child recipe is totally different than, you know, reading almost any other recipe. I mean, I love Julia Child's recipes, but God, ma'am, she's difficult. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, So if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture. Um, So I... So my husband and I built a bar between our house and our neighbor's house. Um, Is it like on the fence? It's like we we have two townhouses and we both have porches out back. And there was a wall, but instead we decided the wall needed to be replaced. So we ripped it down 
and we built a bar. I'll send you a picture. You can put it up. That's um, so cool. And so we're out there almost every single day, um, just like having a cocktail or a glass of wine at the bar. And to be honest, like I wouldn't replace that for almost anything. It's just great, like having like neighbors and a community. And so I, I would say I'd probably just have a daiquiri sitting out with my husband and my neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> you can't beat it. So wait, so is the bar, is there like a... Because it's right between two houses. So is yes. your side the back of the bar and their side the front? Or is there like so, two backs or two fronts? So it's basically like we built a massive, basically a massive table. Um, so we had, it was a, it's a, our side is a screen porch. And so one side was a, you know, a wall up to a table that extends over onto their side. And then it like wraps around and comes down. So it's like a probably eight foot long by four foot wide bar that makes up the boundary between our two houses. Nice. Yeah. It's really sweet. That is very, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, You're welcome to come over for a drink sometime. I, you know, it's funny because I've been like in the back alley. You yeah, can't necessarily you can't tell. Really, you can't really see it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. We call it um, Eckington's Hottest Speakeasy. <laughs> it's funny. I've started having my friends come by here more and more often now that mm-hmm. I've, I've moved to somewhere that is not just a terrible bad apartment. And uh, they're like, the, the rule that we have is... You text me ahead of time. You ask me what bottle you want to bring. Then they stop the liquor store on the way here. Nice. And so I look. I'm like, ah, I'm running low on Sue's. Get me a bottle of Sue's. And they come with that. And then nice. I make them cocktails. And then they leave without having to pay. So it's kind of like a... It's a good deal. It's legit, you know? Yeah. Well, also, when you when you do the economics on like, okay, once you know how to make a good cocktail in your own home, I like going out for like a crazy experience every once in a while, but if you can make a really good cocktail at home, it's usually like the max it's going to cost you is four bucks Mm -hmm. to make that cocktail, even if it's with the most premium ingredients. So for me, it's always like, why would I go out? I have this bar back here. I can like, you know, make everything exactly the way I want to make it to my perfect specifications with the ingredients that I love. For four dollars. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> and if somebody brings a bottle and subsidizes then it, it's, it's even cheaper. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> yes, this is a great plug for that. Well, I mean, I think both of what we do is encourage people to drink at home. Absolutely. Um, and be better drinkers outside of the home, obviously. But yeah, I can't I can't agree more. Um advicey stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there any cocktail books or books about like syrups that were influential to you as you got into this that you might recommend to others? Sure. So I would say that my cooking background is probably the thing that's most influential. Um, So uh, there's a bunch of different, like of my favorite cooking books that make sense here. But I would say my favorite is right now at least, and for the last probably couple of years is a book called The Flavor Bible. Uh, because it it it's it's a weird cocktail. I mean, it's a weird uh, recipe book. It basically doesn't have any recipes. Um, you go in and it's an encyclopedia of ingredients, and you can say, okay, well, I have butternut squash. Let me look up butternut squash, and then it shows you 
a whole bunch of other flavors that work with butternut. So it might come up with, you know, brown butter and sage and maple or something like that. And then you can come up with flavor combinations for whatever you're cooking. Or to be honest, I think it's great for figuring stuff out for cocktails for unique combinations uh, because the flavor profiles that apply to food are also things that apply to cocktails. It's just in liquid form. Right. Yeah. The flavor Bible is awesome. I have never had it, but I have another one called, I think it's called culinary artistry. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I jokingly call it chefs answering questions because (laughs) the authors got away with just interviewing chefs and that's the bulk of the book. That's awesome. Uh, So (laughs) that's brilliant. Yes. So we're going to have the modern bar cart podcast, the book soon, but it's, it's got a, it's got a section that does very, very much that. And it it also, the cool thing I like about it too, is that it also stipulates, um, seasonality. Mm Mm-hmm. So like totally. if, you're, if you're eating lamb in the spring, mm-hmm. it's different than eating eating mutton in the winter. Absolutely. And here's how it's different based on the, the things that go best with it. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really cool place to like look for inspiration. So do you have any advice for folks who are interested in, let, let's, let's, let's kind of tweak it a little bit instead of people who are interested in doing cocktails at home. Mm-hmm. What about people who are interested in making syrups at home? Because sure. it's a very, very difficult thing. And mm-hmm. obviously we're, tr- we're selling all of your products here. Right. Um, but you can't do better than fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are like your big things to either make sure you do or avoid if somebody wants to try their hand at this at home after they taste your stuff and realize like, oh man, like I, what if I did this? Absolutely. So one of the things I would, there are a bunch of different pieces of advice I would give, but one of the biggest things is that you have to measure your ingredients. If you don't measure your ingredients, you will end up, because you're making it in such a small quantity, there is no room for error at the home. Like if you're going to make just a cup of syrup or a cup and a half, and you're going to try to infuse it with different botanicals and herbs and things like that, a difference in a gram makes a massive difference in the end of your syrup. Yep. So make sure that you pay attention to that. Also think about different cooking processes and how you're going to express your botanicals. So um, we're also making a cranberry syrup potentially for Whole Foods. And the cranberry syrup, when you think about cranberry, you think about cooked cranberry as being very different from fresh cranberry in terms of the flavor. So just consider those things when you're making the syrup. If you cook down that syrup for a long time, it's gonna taste more like cooked cranberry. If you just heat the sugar enough to dissolve in with the cranberry, it's gonna taste like fresh cranberry. There are things like if you add any type of zest to your syrup, it will evaporate really, really quickly if it's if your syrup is boiling. So make sure you take it off the heat and just lightly zest it in. Other botanicals take a lot of effort to infuse. So things like cinnamon or clove or other like very heavy fall spice notes, one of the best ways to infuse them and to actually get the most bang for your buck is to pressure cook a tea first um, and then add stuff in. So just respect the ingredients and how they should be best expressed um, instead of just throwing some stuff in a pan and hoping it comes together. I mean, I'm sure you have experienced this a lot with bitters. Like there are a lot of people who follow a bitters recipe that doesn't make tinctures first. 
it doesn't make sense to do that because everything infuses at a different rate. And so you have to make a tincture first in order to mix it at the end, make it taste right um, for a bitters. Uh, because, you know, a cinchona bark that steeps for three days is different than one that steeps for five days. But your ideal cinnamon might be five days, but your cinchona ideal is three days. So it's better to do. So just pay attention to your recipe make sure you're following maybe weighing your ingredients that's usually a better way to do stuff um and then pay attention to how the ingredients might be best expressed and don't be afraid to just like toy around with stuff sugar is cheap so just like if something doesn't taste right toss it out start again learn from your mistakes and you'll probably do just fine. Yeah, I, I think that just in terms of purchases for getting started with syrups, I think a, a decent kitchen scale is important. Something that mm -hmm. goes up to about five to seven pounds mm -hmm. that you can put a measuring cup on and then tear it out to zero. Um, Definitely. One of the things that we talk about in our homemade syrups episode is, is measuring by weight versus by mm -hmm. by like the cup volume. Um, the cool thing about water is that one milliliter equals one gram. Mm -hmm. So you can pretty much just measure out your water. But when it comes mm -hmm. to sugar, the different amounts and different types of sugar are going to weigh different amounts at various levels. So it's it's important when you're when you're trying to figure out like your what we would call your bricks, basically how mm -hmm. much sugar is in the water, the difference mm -hmm. between a simple and a rich simple. That's best done by weight if you're trying to be mm -hmm. consistent and replicated across time. So a kitchen scale is great. And then in terms of straining, there's some pretty easy things that that you can do. Obviously, most people are going to have like a sieve. Sure. Um, and then in addition to that, I think that just cheesecloth and then maybe even like a nut milk bag yeah. are really Honestly, useful. Honestly, what I think they're super useful, but what most people will already have in their own home is coffee filters. Exactly. Coffee filters are super easy. You can just line a sieve with it and then you're getting your multi like, you know, straining at the same time. Also, a lot of sediment will settle out at the bottom. So if you are okay with it, you can just, you know pour it into a container and then pour off the top like three quarters and then toss out the bottom um, at the end. And chances are you'll still have a great syrup and it won't have as much sediment in it. You know, my kind of like wish list item right now is a, is a giant separatory funnel. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be so nice. Just rack it right off It'd the bottom. It would be so nice. That's, I'm trying to like convince my wife that we have room and I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think it's the case. That's like uh, when we were when we were trying to figure out how to make the ginger um, a profitable thing. Uh, one of the biggest problems was we were spending like 40 man hours a week just peeling ginger because the flavor difference between peeled ginger when it's been juiced and just regular ginger is massive. When it hasn't been peeled, it has this funky like really like root like aftertaste dirty. it's dirty. dirty it's like dirt yeah and so it really messes it's almost like wet socks that have been it's really gross so uh we had to figure out how to peel it properly and it's like the weirdest thing of my life that we spent four thousand dollars on a ginger peeler but like it paid for itself in a couple of months, and I was like, "This is a weird part of my life that I buy a ginger peeler." What is it? What do you do? You have to get the ginger to a certain size before so, you stick it in. So actually, so what we did was there are ginger peelers that come from China, but I didn't want to. I didn't like trust any of that, so um, I decided that we were gonna get um, a ginger peeler that's actually a potato peeler. Mm -hmm. So it's an industrial potato peeler that has an abraded basket on the inside, and it has a water 
water jet that shoots water through the abraded inside and tosses the ginger. And what we do is we just break off all the big knobs, basically, toss it in. And what had taken us, you know, 40 man hours a week um, to peel, I think it was like 700 pounds of ginger, is now it takes us um, about uh, five minutes. That's insane. Yeah. And my guys were a little bit upset and they were like, come on, like, (laughs) couldn't have we gotten this earlier? I'm like, yeah, but it was (laughs) $4,000. Yeah, that's that's not nothing. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So this has been great, Tori. I'm going to give you a chance now to just tell folks all of the social handles and just where they can reach out to you if they have any Mm -hmm. questions. Uh, Obviously, of course, you know where you can reach us. Uh, but, you know, if you have a syrup question, maybe better to go to somebody who actually does it for a living as opposed to <laughs> somebody like me who just talks about it. <laughs> I'm sure you know plenty. But if you guys want to reach out to me, my email is Tori at PrattStandard.com. Tori with a Y. Tori with a Y. T-O-R-Y at PrattStandard.com. And then our social media handles are all at Pratt Standard. So Pratt Standard um, on Facebook and Pratt Standard on Instagram. We don't really do Twitter. Um, so just follow us on Instagram and, and on Facebook. Nobody good does Twitter. <laughs> it's, uh, no, no, it's all on, all on the Insta. So Tori, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Delicious syrups and brand building knowledge by Tori Pratt of Pratt Standard Cocktail Company and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.